0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's September, and for most, that equals back-to-school time. If you obsessively follow true crime stories you know that crimes happen everywhere. Unfortunately, that includes school campuses. This month, I'll detail three cases, one that occurred on a high school campus, one at a middle school, and one connected to a college campus. In this first episode, a 14-year-old high school student commits a horrific act of rape and murder in a school bathroom. Was Philip Chisholm mentally ill, as his defense would later claim, or was he faking it to get away with murder? This is chapter one in the series, Schools Out Forever, The Murder of Colleen Ritzer. (music) Tuesday, October 22nd, 2013, began like any other school day in Danvers, Massachusetts, Colleen Ritzer, age 24, arrived at Danvers High School before 7 a.m. to prepare for her student's arrival. She wore black slacks and a purple top. It was Dress like a friend day, and she had coordinated her outfit to match her fellow math teacher and friend, Sarah Giaquinta. Colleen Ritzer was born in nearby Lawrence, Massachusetts, and was the eldest of three siblings. Her parents were Thomas and Peggy Ritzer. After graduating from Andover High School, Colleen attended Assumption College in Worcester. She'd always aspired to be a teacher, and upon completing her college degree in 2011, she earned a teaching credential. She taught for one year at Hale Middle School in Stowe before being hired as a math teacher at Danvers High. Colleen loved teaching, and inspiring her students to succeed was not only her job, but her passion. She was known as one of Danvers High's most fun and creative young teachers, and was loved by her students she often stayed in her classroom after school to give extra time to students who needed more help conquering math formulas or to share a word of encouragement. Colleen admitted on Twitter that as a math teacher, she was, quote, often too excited about the topics I'm teaching. Her fellow teacher, Joe Spanos, described Colleen as, quote, beautiful inside and out. She loved her job and her students so much that she was rarely seen without a smile while walking the school hallways. Fresh-faced and pretty, she appeared even younger than her 24 years. The events that unfolded that Tuesday in October would be documented on video by the high school's newly installed security camera system. Colleen Ritzer was recorded arriving just before 7 a.m. She carried a black tote bag and her lunch bag as she entered her classroom. Just minutes later, 14-year-old Philip Chisholm entered the school grounds. Video footage recorded him wearing a backpack and carrying two drawstring bags which he placed in his locker before heading to his morning classes. Chisholm was in Colleen Ritzer's ninth grade algebra class. A camera placed in the second floor hallway next recorded him walking to Mrs. Ritzer's classroom for his last period class. On the way, he can be seen interacting with other students and looking relaxed. He stops at his locker and retrieves one of the drawstring bags he'd stored inside that morning, and then walks to Mrs. Ritzer's class, wearing a red sweatshirt. Another student later described Philip Chisholm in class that day as quiet, but noted nothing out of the ordinary. Philip was drawing during class rather than working on the math assignment, but Mrs. Ritzer didn't seem to mind. The student seated next to him heard her say, I didn't know you could draw. A few minutes before class ended, Mrs. Ritzer asked Philip if he could stay after class. She had offered to stay late to help a few students struggling with some equations prepare for an upcoming test. Chisholm nodded to confirm that he'd also stay. Classes ended for the day, and most of the students exited the school. The hallways and school grounds were soon nearly empty. Some students remained for after-school sports or other extracurricular activities. A handful of students were left in classrooms like Colleen Ritzer's for extra study time, or homework help. One student remembered that Chisholm had not responded when the teacher spoke to him, but had sat with his earphones in and continued to draw. At one point, Ms. Ritzer attempted to address Chisholm, inquiring about his recent move to Massachusetts from Tennessee. When she'd mentioned Tennessee, Chisholm appeared to become agitated, according to his classmates. He began mumbling to himself while looking out of the window, but the other student did not hear what he said. Just a few minutes before 3 p.m., Colleen Ritzer can be seen on video footage exiting her classroom and walking down the hallway towards the second-floor women's bathroom. The hallway is empty except for her. Just moments later, Philip Chisholm was recorded exiting the classroom as well. He ducked his head out of the doorway of the room momentarily, peering down the hallway in the direction his teacher had gone. He then re-enters the classroom briefly and re-emerges with the hood of his sweatshirt pulled over his head. Another camera captures Chisholm entering the women's restroom. Before he enters, he is seen pulling gloves on over his hands. It is about 2.58 PM. At 3.07, Chisholm is next seen exiting the bathroom with the hood still pulled over his head. Cameras then track him walking towards the school parking lot. Two minutes later, he returns without the hooded sweatshirt and now is wearing a white t-shirt. Chisholm re-enters his classroom after having donned a different red-hooded sweatshirt. Colleen Ritzer is not seen again on video. Over 20 minutes have passed since she entered the bathroom. At 3.16 p.m., Chisholm returns to the restroom, pulling a large recycling bin after him. A few minutes later, he is seen wheeling the bin out of the bathroom and to an elevator. He is now wearing a black face mask. Almost a half an hour later, The video picks up Chisholm's movements again. He returns to the school wearing a black t-shirt and glasses. He is carrying a pair of jeans with large dark stains on them. When 14-year-old Philip Chisholm didn't return home that evening, his mother Diana Chisholm called the police to report her son missing. Mrs. Chisholm told police that she, her son, and two daughters had recently moved to Massachusetts from Tennessee. She was going through a stressful divorce, she said, and they had bounced around quite a bit. After splitting with her husband, she and the children moved in with a friend in Tennessee, the state where Philip and his siblings had been born and raised. But when her son was in fifth grade, they relocated to Florida and moved in with her parents. They then returned to Tennessee where Philip completed middle school, before moving once again. This time they landed in Massachusetts. It was now the fall of 2013, and Philip began ninth grade at Danvers High School. Philip Chisholm was described as quiet, but had made friends on the soccer team. He was an accomplished player and quickly earned a place on his high school team and was their lead scorer. The evening he was reported missing, the Danvers police informed the public about the missing teen via Twitter and Facebook. His photo was also shared with patrol units in the local area. At about the same time police were looking for the missing teen, 24-year-old Danvers high school math teacher Colleen Ritzer was also reported missing. Colleen was in the habit of calling her mother each evening after work, but Peggy Ritzer hadn't heard from her that evening. She'd begun calling her daughter's co-workers and friends, but no one had seen her. Peggy said it was very unlike Colleen to change her routine without letting someone know. The teacher's description was also disseminated to patrol units. Students and staff at Danvers High, the last place she was seen, were interviewed. A little after midnight, an officer patrolling Old Route 1, a highway north of Danvers, saw a male walking along the side of the unlit, sparsely-traveled road. The officer stopped to do a welfare check, as it was unsafe for pedestrians to walk on the shoulder of the highway in the dark. The temperature was in the 40s that night. As he pulled his police cruiser over and approached the young man, he noticed he was not dressed appropriately for the weather. He wore shorts, a thin sweatshirt, black knee socks, and sneakers. He had a backpack slung over his shoulders. The officer asked the young man questions, but only received vague responses. He told the officer he, quote, wasn't going anywhere. When asked where he was coming from, the young man answered, Tennessee. When he was asked to provide his home address, he said he didn't have one and claimed that he'd been walking for days. He appeared clean and well-groomed, so the officer believed he was being deliberately deceptive. Another police cruiser arrived and shined his car's headlights on the young man. Now both officers together decided to conduct a search. Although the name and description of the missing 14-year-old had already been reported, the officers initially didn't make the connection. This young man appeared much older, perhaps in his late teens or early 20s. They placed him between the two police cruisers and told him to put his backpack on the hood of one of them. They noted that the young man was not making eye contact with the officers. One later described his demeanor as a long-distant stare. They told him to empty his pockets, and he pulled out a driver's license, insurance card, and credit cards. All the items were in the name of Colleen Ritzer. They asked him for his name, and he answered Philip Chisholm. They immediately recognized it as the name of the missing teen. The officers informed the Danvers Police Department that the boy had been found. When Chisholm was asked about the items in his pockets, he told the officers he'd found the identification and credit cards at a nearby convenience store. They suspected he may have stolen them, having not yet been informed that Colleen Ritzer was also missing. They transported Philip Chisholm to the police station for further questioning. After arriving, they searched his backpack. Inside, they found a purse, a pair of women's underwear, and a box cutter with blood on it. The officer asked the teen, whose blood is this? To which he answered, it's the girl's. It was now close to 1 a.m. Chisholm was questioned further after being read his Miranda rights. He confirmed that he understood his rights and signed a consent form. The investigator noted that Chisholm had reddish-brown stains on the sleeve of his sweatshirt and was wearing a ski mask around his neck. Some of Chisholm's clothes, as well as his sneakers, were logged into evidence. Earlier that evening, police searching for the missing teen arrived at Danvers High School to review the video surveillance tapes to aid in their search. They spoke to the high school principal, Susan Ambrosovich, who informed them that one of her teachers, Colleen Ritzer, was also missing. The police also received a phone call from the parent of another student. She reported that she'd observed Philip Chisholm changing his clothes that afternoon in the student parking lot at the edge of the campus. Two officers and a police captain met in the student parking lot and searched a path just beyond it, which led into a wooded area. The officers discovered several items in the brush near the path. A tote bag belonging to Colleen Ritzer, shoes and other clothing, and a recycling bin were found. There appeared to be blood in the recycling bin. The school was searched, and a significant amount of blood was found in the second-floor women's bathroom. According to a witness, There was so much blood, it had pooled from the furthest stall to the bathroom's entrance. Video surveillance footage was reviewed that showed Colleen Ritzer entering the second-floor bathroom, closely followed by Philip Chisholm. Only Philip had emerged, and soon was seen wearing different clothes and wheeling a recycling bin matching the one found in the woods into the bathroom. With the evidence they uncovered, investigators returned to interview Philip Chisholm as a suspect in the disappearance of his high school teacher. Presenting Chisholm with the bloody box cutter and items found on him belonging to Colleen Ritzer, they asked him where they had come from. He answered, the girl. With knowledge regarding the bloody crime scene, investigators suspected that Ms. Ritzer had most likely been murdered. They asked Chisholm whether the girl could be helped if they found her. He answered, no. At 2 a.m., Philip Chisholm was taken to a private interview room. His mother was allowed to go in first and speak with him privately. Officers entered about 30 minutes later to begin the interview. Diana Chisholm also remained in the room. The interview was audio-recorded and videotaped and lasted about two hours. Philip Chisholm admitted that he had, quote, cut the girl, and when asked if she had been fatally wounded, he said he believed so. They asked him to draw a diagram of where Colleen Ritzer's body could be found. The Massachusetts State Police had employed cadaver dogs and infrared technology to search for the missing teacher without success. Denver's Police Sergeant Philip Tanzi asked Chisholm to, quote, explain it to us so we can understand what happened. Does she have to be here? Chisholm asked, pointing to his mother. Diana Chisholm told her son she would leave if he wanted to talk to the police, and tell them what happened. He answered, Then just leave. I don't know why you're here. His mother replied, I'm here because I love you. He responded, I don't care. After his mother left the interview room, Chisholm told the police that he didn't like his mother or anyone else. He agreed to tell them what had happened to his teacher. He said that, quote, Very bad things happened, end quote. He said what had occurred had resulted after his teacher had mentioned a, quote, trigger word. But when asked to explain what he meant, Chisholm didn't respond. The investigators noted that as soon as his mother left the interview room, Chisholm made eye contact with them for the first time. He talked about knocking out his teacher and that he'd cut her twice. They asked again if she was dead, and he said, yeah. Where was her body, they asked. She's buried in the woods, he responded. Philip Chisholm drew a diagram of the school grounds to show police where he'd taken his teacher's body. Calmly and with little emotion, he told investigators that he'd put Ms. Ritzer's clothes, the clothes he'd been wearing, and Miss Ritzer's body in the recycle bin. He said he'd taken it out to the woods, removed her body, and, quote, chucked the bin pretty far into the woods. He drew three diagrams in total. One was the layout of the school campus and grounds, with the word body written at the approximate location he said his victim could be found. Another was a diagram of the area where he said he'd smashed both his and Colleen Ritzer's cell phones. And the third was a detailed drawing of the stab wounds he'd inflicted on his victim. Once he was done describing his gruesome crime, Philip Chisholm said he was hungry and asked the officers if they could get him something to eat. At 3 a.m., Colleen Ritzer's body was found, half naked and covered with leaves, in the woods behind the school campus. A pair of blood-stained gloves was found nearby. Investigators stated that after being taken out of the recycling bin, the teacher's body had been, quote, sexually posed. She had also been violated with a tree branch post-mortem. A folded handwritten note which read, I hate you all, was found nearby. An autopsy would reveal that Colleen Ritzer had most likely been strangled first to incapacitate her. Although Chisholm claimed to have, quote, cut her twice with the box cutter, in reality, she'd been stabbed and slashed in the neck 16 times. The attack had been committed with such force that it had severed her carotid artery, trachea, and esophagus and nicked the vertebrae at the back of her neck. After burying the body, Chisholm had changed out of his bloody clothes, taking his bloody jeans and calling Ritz's purse and cell phone with him. He'd used money from her wallet to purchase fast food, and later that evening, used her credit card to purchase a movie ticket to a late-night showing of the Woody Allen film Blue Jasmine. Philip Chisholm was arrested and charged with the murder of Colleen Ritzer. He pleaded not guilty and was held without bail to await trial. His attorney asked for a mental competency hearing, which the judge granted. 14-year-old Philip Chisholm confessed to the senseless murder of his teacher, Colleen Ritzer the legal wrangling would begin to determine whether or not the teen was competent to stand trial for rape and first-degree murder, and whether he should be tried in juvenile or adult court. Even though he was only 14 years old at the time of the crime, Chisholm was charged as an adult. Since 1996, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts specified that anyone 14 years or older charged with murder or a second felony would automatically be tried in adult court. Ironically, Chisholm had told investigators at the time of his confession that he wanted to get caught and, quote, go to juvie. In other words, he may have believed that the harshest punishment he would receive was incarceration in a juvenile correctional facility and would be released at the age of 18 or perhaps 21. If so, he greatly miscalculated the sentence the law would allow for his crime. Philip Chisholm's defense attorneys brought in three expert witnesses to attest to the defendant's psychological state at the time of the murder. They told the jury they would prove that Chisholm lacked criminal responsibility due to mental disease or defect. The case did not go to trial for two years. His attorneys used that time to assess Chisholm thoroughly before presenting their case. Child and adolescent psychiatrists called as witnesses by the defense testified that Chisholm was experiencing acute psychosis when he attacked and murdered Colleen Ritzer. Psychiatrists hired by the defense conducted dozens of interviews over several months with the defendant, his parents and family members, reviewed his school records and police reports, the school security footage, and videos of his police interrogation. They claimed that Philip Chisholm began having auditory hallucinations at the age of 10. As a child, Chisholm came to believe he was an anime or manga character encouraged to act out certain behaviors by these imaginary voices. Although his family members were unaware of these hallucinations, the psychiatrist explained that Philip Chisholm was an intelligent boy who learned how to hide his symptoms of mental illness and for the most part appeared to function normally. They also provided testimony that he was, quote, born into a family with a substantial history of severe mental illness. His maternal grandmother and aunt had multiple hospitalizations for psychotic mental illness, according to the defense. His grandmother had been treated for these psychotic breaks with electroshock therapy. Her husband described how Chisholm's grandmother could appear perfectly fine for some time and then suffer from a sudden onset of psychosis resulting in hospitalization. Phillips moved to Massachusetts from Tennessee, sent him over the edge, the defense explained his parents' contentious divorce, his unstable living arrangements, and loss of the support system he'd once had in Tennessee, all contributed to the stress that caused him to break with reality on the day he attacked his teacher. Philip was biracial, and his attorneys also claimed that being a minority in a new school that was predominantly white increased his stress level even more. They put some of Chisholm's classmates on the stand, who testified that over the days leading up to the murder, he became more socially withdrawn, exhibited a flat effect, and rarely spoke. One student in Ms. Ritzer's classroom said that just before the attack on his teacher, Philip had become agitated when she'd brought up the subject of Tennessee. Chisholm began mumbling to himself while looking out of the window. His defense claimed that the mention of his home state by Colleen Ritzer is what triggered his psychotic break. After that point, Philip Chisholm was not in his right mind, but was experiencing an acute psychotic episode and was, quote, in the command of the voices, his attorneys claimed. If the jury wasn't convinced that Philip Chisholm had a mental illness, the defense also brought in experts to explain the limitations of the juvenile brain on rational decision-making. Lead defense attorney Denise Reagan told the jury that, quote, the juvenile brain has an effect on teenagers that makes them very different from adults. They have difficulty making decisions under stress and controlling their impulses. In addition to his not yet fully formed brain function, Philip Chisholm, Reagan explained, was not an ordinary 14 year old boy, but a 14 year old boy with the burden of a progressive mental illness. However, the prosecution had a very different view of Philip Chisholm's criminal actions. They disagreed with the defense and said that far from exhibiting any mental disease or defect, Chisholm displayed an incredible amount of planning in his calm and methodical actions to take his victim by surprise, incapacitate her before sexually assaulting and murdering her, and then took great pains to hide the body before fleeing the crime scene. They described for the jury how Chisholm had arrived at school on the morning of the murder with a kill kit, a bag containing a box cutter, face mask, and several changes of clothing. Surveillance videos show him not mindlessly wandering the hallways and bathroom before the murder, but instead carefully scoping it out prior to the attack to make sure no one saw him follow Colleen Ritzer, they said. They provided video evidence that he'd lingered at the bathroom door and listened before entering. They told the jury this was most likely to make sure she was alone and vulnerable before he entered. He'd also donned gloves prior to the attack to obscure his fingerprints. Chisholm's crime, according to the prosecution, rather than being a disorganized and chaotic attack, as presented by the defense, was carefully planned and methodical. He'd incapacitated his victim by choking her to ensure she couldn't cry out and call attention to his crime before stabbing her repeatedly. He then changed his clothing and returned to the classroom to steal Colleen Ritzer's handbag containing her cell phone, wallet, and credit cards. Chisholm then hid his bloody clothes and rounded up a bin big enough to conceal and remove the body to a second location. Once in the woods, he continued brutalizing his victim and finally hid the body. They concluded their case by stating that the level of planning required to carry out and cover up the crime proved Chisholm was in complete control of his mental faculties. The defense rebutted the state's case by describing Colleen Ritzer's murder as an act of overkill. The attack had been committed with such ferocity, they said, it proved Chisholm had snapped, as his actions defied all explanation. As far as anyone knew, Chisholm had never had a personal problem with his teacher, had never expressed anger towards her, or in any other way had a reason to target her for such a brutal attack, they said. This was further evidence that Chisholm's irrationality was an act of madness. The defense scoffed at the state's description of their client's meticulous planning. Chisholm's movements were all recorded on video surveillance camera that were in plain view, and he'd carried out the attack in a public place, where he could have been easily discovered, they said. In fact, a student had entered the restroom while Chisholm was already engaged in the attack. The student had walked in, saw someone behind the bathroom stall, observed a, quote, pile of clothes on the floor, and quickly left, embarrassed that she might have interrupted someone changing their clothes in the restroom. The defense also reminded the jury that Chisholm had not attempted to clean up the blood in the bathroom and had used his victim's credit cards to purchase a movie ticket, which could easily be traced back to him. He'd also kept several items registered in the victim's name, which were discovered on him when the police picked him up. The victim's blood was smeared all over his clothes and the bloody box cutter was still in his possession. If Philip Chisholm was behaving rationally, wouldn't he have at least attempted to cover his tracks, the defense asked the jury. Finally, there was the matter of how quickly Chisholm confessed to the crime once he was confronted with the bloody box cutter and the blood on his clothing. They also had jurors review the interview where the defendant displayed little emotion while being questioned, almost as if he were in a dissociative state, the defense concluded. However, the prosecution then presented the report from the initial encounter with the police, where Chisholm lied about where he was coming from, where he lived, and flat-out refused to answer basic questions about his identity. Finally, Chisholm's attorneys asked the jury to consider the fact that the state had no good explanation for the motive. The prosecution has suggested that Chisholm may have had a, quote, major crush on his math teacher, and made an advance towards her that was rebuffed. Their theory was that this angered Chisholm enough to provide a motivation for the attack. But this was only a theory, and when completely unsubstantiated by the evidence, the defense countered. It was the prosecution's firm belief that Chisholm later latched on to his attorney's strategy to exaggerate or fake his claims of mental illness. It was a clear case of malingering on the defendant's part to avoid a lengthy prison sentence, the prosecution stated. Ultimately, it would be up to the jury to decide whether Philip Chisholm's actions led them to conclude that he'd acted with deliberate premeditation or that he'd suffered a psychotic break and could not be held criminally responsible. After nine hours of deliberation, the jury reached its verdict. On December 15, 2015, Philip Chisholm was convicted of the rape, armed robbery, and first-degree murder of Colleen Ritzer. Superior Court Judge David Lowry handed down a sentence of 25 years in prison for the murder and 40 years in one day on the rape and robbery charges. The crashing waves of this tragedy will never wane, the judge said at Chisholm's sentencing. Chisholm's sentences will be served concurrently. He will not be eligible for parole until he has served 40 years behind bars. When he was sentenced, he was one month away from his 17th birthday. He will have his first chance at parole at the age of 54. Chisholm was remanded to a juvenile detention center until his 18th birthday and subsequently transferred to an adult correctional facility. In 2015, Massachusetts Governor DeVal Patrick signed legislation that prohibited minors 17 years old and under from being tried as adults in the Massachusetts criminal justice system. Under this new law, minors convicted of certain violent crimes will be tried in juvenile court. However, a juvenile court judge can still impose an adult sentence if the minor is convicted. In addition, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional to sentence minors to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Children's brains are not fully developed, the state's highest court stated, so a minor convicted of a crime, even one as serious as murder, cannot be deemed irretrievably depraved and must still have a chance for eventual release. Chisholm, now age 24, is currently incarcerated in the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center in Lancaster a supermax prison. In 2014, while still being held at the Department of Youth Services in Dorchester, he was charged with lying in wait for a female staff worker, beating and choking her, and attempting to stab her with a pencil. That case remains open. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Thanks once again for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode in the series, School's Out Forever, and I hope you'll join me then. To watch the videos that accompany our episodes, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Photos and video clips help you dive into each case even further. Search for Once Upon a Crime podcast on YouTube or click on the link in our show notes. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Thank you so much. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Research for this episode was provided by Emma Battaglia. Until next time, be good to one another,